The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight, and a big welcome for anybody who's here for the first time. And uh, <clears throat> last couple of weeks, I spoke about the underlying principle that really shapes all the the Buddhist teachings, which is this. Really, a change of allegiance, right? Because we, mo- you know, an ordinary human being, which means you and me, most of the time, we're always orienting, almost always orienting around happiness that comes from getting what we want and getting away from what we don't want. And then, if we're fortunate, we'll stumble upon another kind of happiness, right? So, spiritual life isn't about suffering; it's about happiness about peace, but it's a reorientation about where to find it. Because there really is a happiness in getting what I want and getting away from what I don't want. It's just not very trustworthy, that happiness. right? Because a lot of us, in moments at least, we have gotten what we wanted. And we have gotten rid of what we didn't want around us. And we feel good about that. But the next day, or even the next hour, we were right back at it, wanting to get something, wanting to get rid of something. So it wasn't a lasting satisfaction, the whatever struggles we've been in in our lives to get what we want and get away from what we don't want. And of course, the Buddha observed his own dance with getting what he wants and getting away from what he don't want, and he saw the limitations of that. And just studying his own heart over a long period of time, he realized something, right? And generally, we call that the happiness of renunciation. And so the last few weeks, if you weren't here, you can we recorded the talks, and they're up on our website. You can listen to them or go right to dharmacy.org where we have all our talks that anybody can listen to. <clears throat> and uh, so, you know, this happiness of renunciation, it kind of strikes us like, I'm not so sure I'm that interested in the happiness of renunciation. I'm definitely interested in the happiness of getting what I want and getting rid of what I don't want. That I understand, right? Because it is. We do understand that. But <clears throat> the Buddha would suggest, well, really study what, whether that really has taken care of you because that might make you more interested in checking out the happiness of renunciation, what I mean by that. Because we might need some humility as the Buddha said, I read this sutta a couple weeks ago, it was precisely, this is sort of a rough paraphrase, the Buddha was saying something like, it's precisely because I didn't clearly, carefully check out the happiness of renunciation that I didn't really get it for a while. But when I carefully, specifically looked in my heart, in my mind, at what it is like not to need experience to make me happy, right? The happiness of not needing life to be different than it is. Doesn't mean we're, you know, we're not going to enjoy if somebody gives us something in the moment or it's not going to be unpleasant if somebody takes something away that we like. It just means that we're not, the happiness we're seeking isn't about getting or getting rid of. It really isn't about 
the particular conditions in the moment. We just deal with the joys and the sorrows that come our way. And we are very clear. Yeah, now it's joyful. Yep, now it's sorrowful. Now it's difficult. But we're not pretending that that's what's ultimately important. Because we're more interested in this new kind of happiness that we're getting the kind of the whiff of, the scent of. We're sort of following the thread of this happiness that we call the happiness of letting go, the happiness of renunciation, the happiness of non-grasping, the happiness of non-attachment. Right? We have different ways of talking about it. We've all have some sense of this. But now we're really highlighting it. Like, let's be a good student in our lives, our ordinary lives with the particular circumstances that each of us have. Let's be a really sincere, dedicated, careful student of the happiness of non-attachment. What is that happiness? Do we really, have we brought some integrity to it so that we can honestly say to ourselves, oh yeah, I know what that is, I know what value it has, and I found it wanting. <laughs> I'm not that interested in it. Or is our sort of not caring about it because we haven't checked it out? One of the most famous lines from all the Buddhist teachings, you know, he taught for 45 years after his own deep insight before he died somewhere around 85. Um, so he had a lot of teachings, and they were really into maintaining them. So you know, it was an oral tradition, but they sort of memorized a lot of these teachings. But of all the teachings, one of the most famous phrases is something like, Ehi pasiko is the Pali. Come and check it out. Right? You have to check this out for yourself. It doesn't matter that I'm saying it or other people are saying it. It will only be useful if you actually check it out. Not check it out by thinking about it, but check it out by actually practicing in some corner of your life, practice non-attachment. doesn't matter where. Go for a walk you know, around a lake and see if you can, as you're moving, as you're aware of mental activity, as you're aware of physical activity, seeing, hearing, sensations of walking, practice being a sensitive human being without attachment and see, check it out, like, is there real happiness in being a human being, walking around a lake, having sense experience, seeing what we like, attractive people, seeing what we don't like, dog poop or whatever, you know. (laughs) But the heart attuned, right, in allegiance with the happiness of not needing the moment to be different, not needing to have what I want, not needing to get rid of what I don't want. Now, that's not the same as saying that if a mosquito lands on me, I won't go, right? It just means that blowing the mosquito away isn't me trying to be happy. It's just what I'm going to do. It's not harming the mosquito. It's not harming me. It's not harming anyone. Why wouldn't we blow the mosquito away? But whether the mosquitoes are out to get me or there are no mosquitoes whatsoever, I'm practicing my happiness, the release of my heart, 
the peacefulness that I'm abiding with, I'm practicing it not being a function of whether there are mosquitoes or not, or not being a function of the humidity or the temperature, or whether there are a lot of interesting people walking around the lake, or you know, the worst thing would be people I don't want to be associated with. I mean, I, I don't know, if I grew up in Minneapolis, and I remember, <clears throat> you know, it was sort of like some lakes, well, it sort of depended who you were, like what lake you would walk around. You know, it's like younger people walk around, oh, I forget what the new name for Lake Calhoun is. No, oh, we can't understand, <laughs> <but> that lake. <laughs> I'm going to learn it. Um, you know, and then families more around Lake Harriet and, you know, the really cool people around Lake C- or Cedar Lake, but you can't really, I guess you can sort of walk around it, but, you know, and then we all know the kind of people that walk around Lake of the Isles. <laughs> <laughs> the Kenwood people, right? <laughs> or the wannabe Kenwood people. <laughs> I know, those are just stereotypes, but you know how that is. It's sort of like, it's like that identity thing, which is just causing so much suffering, who I want to be, who I don't want to be. And then that ends up being so much of what a simple activity of walking around a lake, like, is this the right lake to be walking around? Or are these the people I want to be around? You know, Do I fit in here or not? And of course, well, <laughs> there's just so many nuances to this too, about like, I was just thinking about being a white person in Minneapolis and what lakes we walk around. And it's probably a completely different experience for, you know, other people who aren't necessarily a white person. Maybe that's, you know, Nokomis or who knows what, where people walk. And just how we're oblivious to these things. So the the causes for suffering or we're always relating to the present moment in terms of what I can get, you know, basically feeding my ego, feeding that self-centered beast, that insecure self-centered beast that's always looking for something to ground into. But whatever I get, like, oh, so cool to be walking with that person, you know, I'd like to sort of be walking around the same lake that that person's walking around. And then, you know, but then you see somebody else, oh, no, no, that's, don't want to be associated with that, right? And so we're as long as I'm feeding, as long as my ego is feeding, like trying to find ground, I'm vulnerable to everything that's coming my way. Oh, I don't want to be having that thought. Oh, I do want to be having that thought, right? I'm vulnerable to the thoughts that come and go, the memories that come and go, the sights, the sounds. Is that sort of feeding me or is it sort of, threatening me. But the happiness of renunciation is not being in that game. It's the game, it's the uh, way of being that like we're intimate, we're seeing it all. It's not like we're disconnected or distant from what's going on around us. But the attention, or you could say the refuge is in equanimity and non-attachment, and balance. The heart that's realizing in this moment, non-grasping, not being dependent 
on whether they're mosquitoes or cool people or not cool people or biting flies or trash on the side or whatever it might be. Oh, now it's like this. That's why we often, uh, you know, just as we navigate our life, it's almost like one of those rituals can be chanting the eight worldly winds. A lot of you know this. It's a common teaching in Buddhism where the Buddha talks about these vicissitudes that we just get blown around by. Praise and blame, gain and loss, success, failure, um, fame and disrepute, and pain and pleasure. And the idea is like knowing that this is the world we inhabit, being blown, everybody gets blown around. I mean, in their own version of being blown around with these eight worldly winds, then it's always this, well, of course, now this is the pain. It's not surprising because I'm in this world of eight, with these eight worldly winds. So, of course, some of the time it's going to be painful. Oh, now it's pleasant. Yeah, sometimes it's going to be pleasant. Oh, everyone likes me. Praise, right? Oh, okay. Oh, you don't like me. <laughs> you didn't like that. You want me to go away. Okay. Disrepute, right? Insults. And so nothing surprises right, uh, somebody who's practicing, who's attuned to the happiness of renunciation. So this is why we actually train the mind. And like we did tonight, you know, where we use this more exclusive anchor. So we bring awareness. It's almost like we're filling the body with awareness. Or as the body, as the body, as the Buddha, as it gets translated at least, the Buddha's teaching, mindfulness immersed in the body. Right? Filling the body with awareness. So we're saying, okay, this is a breathing body. It's a pumping body with the heart. A feeling body sensation, doing its thing. We're learning to sort of in this more specific aspect of my life, the feeling body, the sensing body, really showing up, grounding. And it's wild, right? And sometimes the body's really painful and sometimes, hopefully, pleasantness in the body, maybe a light, vibratory feeling at times in the body, easeful feelings at times. But whatever it is, the happiness we're seeking is the happiness of not needing the body to be different than it is. Not needing the breath to be different than it is. And you'll see, it will be so vivid, like the tension that comes with wanting the body to be different than it is, like when you have knee pain and not wanting it, or when your breath is shallow and you want it to be deeper, or the breath is deep and you want it to be you know, lighter and more shallow, more easy. And it's tight. Where Whenever we're in this role, the mind feels like it's in this role of being the manager of the body, in control of the body, needing to sort of make choices about the body. Even in a very simple, subtle way, it's stressful. But when the mind is really there, intimate, with the body, with sensation. But it knows that the body is just the body. It's nature. And it's going to, as nature, as a natural unfolding, the body, the breath, the heart, the sensations, it's just going to do what it's going to do according to the 
you could say the laws of nature. What's in motion? All the causes and conditions that are in motion, that really are the body. And the wisdom in the mind just knows, yeah, the body's just the body. And I'm orienting the mind, the wisdom is orienting or taking refuge in the non-grasping, the non-attachment, the non-resisting, the non-controlling of the body. So this is our training. You could call this the basic training. We're going back to kindergarten. We're finding a simple way, uh, I'm sorry, a simple place at home every day, ideally, right? 30 minutes would be nice. An hour would be better. Two minutes is better than no minutes. So sometime every day, quiet little corner in your apartment, not so cluttered, have your chair there, your sitting cushion there. Maybe you want a little altar there if that, if that works for you. But whatever it is, so that the place in your apartment, in your home, is kind of an honored corner because it represents the thing that is the most, easy thing, most easiest thing to forget about. The easiest thing to forget about, right? It's so easy with all the pushes and pulls in our life to forget, oh yeah, I, I want to train my mind. I want to train my mind to ori- orient around this other happiness, the happiness of renunciation instead of the happiness of getting what I want thinking that I need what I crave, including craving getting rid of stuff, like irritating people in my life, or painful, you know, neat body problems. If only, then I'll be happy. That stuff. That's the normal orientation. So we come here, common ground, the institution itself, the teachings that we reflect on together here, It's all about this happiness of renunciation. Whether you call it that or not, that's really what it's about. And the basic practice we do, sitting in a kind way, in an alert way, in a relaxed way. And of course, you can do it in walking meditation just as well, right? But we often, you know, use the sitting posture as almost like a symbol of this practice. Okay, go to kindergarten, meaning create suitable conditions where I won't be so pushed around, right? Quiet, uncluttered place. Cell phone is off. Kids are known not to disturb you. Pets are in the other room, content to leave you alone. Realize, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to totally own being a sensitive human being. So this is not my time to fall asleep. This is not my time to think deeply about what I actually need to think deeply about in my life. Those are good things. Catching up in your sleep, good thing to do. Think deeply about the things you've been avoiding thinking deeply about, like, oh my God, I've got to pay attention to this relationship. I've got to really think this through in my life. Right? There are places to be reflective and to think, but that's not our sitting practice. It's a more subtle, deeper practice we're doing. So we want to make sure these other things like catching up on our sleep or thinking things through, they have other places for that to happen so it doesn't creep into our meditation practice, our dharma practice. So then when we're sitting, right, we have this one task. There is this guy who talks a lot about the happiness of renunciation, the liberation of non-clinging. 
I really want to check it out. I really want to check it out because otherwise I'm just going to get swept away like every, almost every other human being on this planet and thinking that the only happiness that's going to come my way is when I get what I want and get a, or get rid of what I don't want. And it's saying, it doesn't take much wisdom to look at that proposition and realize how fatally flawed it is. How can we really get what we want and get rid of what we don't want in any lasting permanent way? Do we know anybody who's finally, once and for all, gotten what they wanted and gotten rid of what they don't want in their life and then they got it locked down? Do you know anybody like that? We don't. So, But that's all we know, so we keep going there because we don't know an alternative. But now... We're no longer those people who haven't heard an alternative. Now we've heard about an alternative, and the person who told about it said, Ehipasiko, check it out. See if there's something of value here for you. And so we create that little corner in our room, and community gets their act together and buys a building and renovates it, and we've got this beautiful place. It's freely available for anybody who wants to come and practice here. It's not even the only... Buddhist Meditation Center in the Twin Cities are several really nice institutions that depending on where you live you can go and sit and practice together learn about the t- these teachings you know in different ways different Buddhist lineages talk in different ways about the practice but it's basically they all talk about <clears throat> the practice of waking up to this possibility of not clinging being intimate like uh, some person once said, a teacher said, the marriage of intimacy and non-clinging. It's a really nice summation of the happiness the Buddha points to. Intimacy. We're not kind of in some la-la land, some trance state. We're right here, ordinary state of consciousness. Now, it's nice to get into exalted meditative states, but that's not the freedom we're looking for. That can be very deeply healing to get into those very quiet meditative states, it can really sensitize us so when we're back in a more ordinary state of consciousness, we're even more raw, more sensitive, which is supportive of the practice because it's impossible to live as a sensitive human being without wisdom. The world is completely unworkable when we're sensitive unless you have a lot of wisdom. So one of the like uh, people who have an ability to have deep, meditative experiences, like good meditators, we sometimes, I think wrongly, refer to those people as. Like people who can get really quiet when they sit. They think it's not great, and it is great. But then, little by little, they become more and more sensitive. And if the wisdom doesn't catch up, everything in life starts to irritate them. Because compared to the exalted, quiet, tranquil place in their sits, Everything in ordinary life is so rough and raw and messy. And they start to really prefer their quiet meditations to life. And they start having an aversive and even fearful relationship to the world because it's so raw and messy and loud and unworkable. So the Buddha, you know, he was totally into using concentration, but the point was. How can we be intimate without clinging, without being oppressed by the conditions in the moment? 
How can we be here, showing up, responding nimbly, creatively, fearlessly, and my heart, this heart, not burdened by the engagement? That's what we're interested in. So that's that's why our sitting at home, that little quiet corner in our home, right? That's kindergarten. So we practice, okay, maybe I can't do this at work, but let me see, sitting relatively still for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, start with a time that's workable for you and then build up. Okay, I'm going to sit for 10 minutes. I'm going to set, get insight meditation timer, free app, Put it aside so you can't see it, right? Set it for the time you're pretty sure you can stay still for. Okay, I'm going to just be here. I have my attitude of kindness, self-compassion. I've got my little training object, like feeling the body, feeling the breath in the body. And I'm going to practice orienting around the happiness of non-clinging, on grasping, instead of doing what I normally do, trying to get something when I'm sitting or get rid of something. Because how much, honestly, those of you, those of us who've been practicing for a long time, what percentage of our meditation time has been, honestly, about getting rid of painful sensations? 50% of our meditation time? At least, probably. You know, where we're like, how can I pay attention to my knee pain so it goes away? You know? That we're still in the same world we're in when we're out sort of doing our business stuff, doing our relationship stuff. We're basically in a negotiation, you know. We're, it's a power game. Just like relationships. I mean, even really wholesome relationships, mostly it's like, uh, like we're uh, negotiating power. Like, I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. Same thing in business, same thing in friendships. It's not bad. I'm not negating that or demonizing that. It's just, that's just a lot of life is sort of navigating, negotiating, the push and pull. And then we do that with our body. We do that with our memories. We do that with our mind states, our emotions. It's like we're still trying to manage life. And even if we're quite competent at that relative to other people, right? It's stressful to have to be somebody who has to manage life. It's not peaceful. So we catch ourselves doing that incessantly when we're meditating. And then and then wisdom goes, Honey, I don't know much, but this isn't the way. This isn't what the Buddha was talking about. I don't know what I don't quite understand what the Buddha where he's pointing what he's pointing to, but I'm pretty sure this, what you're doing, like trying to get rid of that knee pain, or trying to kind of get rid of that negative attitude, I'm pretty sure this isn't the way. So let's do this. Let's just relax. Know that there's a body. feels like this. Know that there's a mind, a thinking mind, an emoting mind. It's like this. Is it safe to relax? with the activity of the body and the mind the way that it is right now? Right? You can just start with that. Is it okay to trust and to relax? See, that's an alternative to, well, first let me get it, get my act together, and then I'll relax. No, no, no. Let me just 
allow the body to be the way it is, allow the mind, the mood, whatever, to be the way it is. See if that's okay. And then if the answer is no, then say, well, what might I pay attention to now where I might be able to practice just letting things be? Practice non-attachment. And then we remember, oh yeah, that's right, I've got my meditation object, right? Feeling the body and feeling the breath in the body. And for some of you, hearing is a useful meditation object, right? These are training objects. So now I'm not going to look at the pain in my body. And I'm not going to look at the memories that are coming and going or the disturbing thoughts or the hopes and dreams and fantasies I have. That stuff's still going to be showing up because there's no off button, right? But we're letting it be in the background or in the periphery of awareness, right? We got this space of awareness or field of awareness, but what's in the forefront? Well, now I'm choosing to have my meditation object in the forefront of awareness. Honey, let's be aware of the body sitting. Let's be aware of the breath moving in the body. Sure, anything else that's in the background in the periphery, fine. Because I'm not looking at the background or the periphery. I'm looking at my meditation object. And that could be just that physicality of the abdominal wall rising with the in-breath. And then sinking a little, falling a little with the out-breath. Or you might feel that normal touching as the breath comes in the nostrils, usually a little cooler on the way in and a little warmer, the touching on the way out. Or maybe some other kind of sensation in the chest, whatever. Wherever you feel the physicality of the breathing process is good. right? Oh yeah, breathing is like this. Breathing in, and in, you know, just as a basic instruction, start off, with a more exclusive or more specific feeling of the breathing in and the breathing out. But as you feel like you're really there in the present moment, then quite naturally allow the awareness to be more inclusive of the whole body. But when that feels a little bit like too much, then just go to something very specific. You can even bring the attention to something very specific, like the tip of the nostrils or a little sensation, you know, kind of at the upper, like right around where the diaphragm is, but it, you know, really specific to each person, where you're you're basically not concerned with any other part of the present moment except that little rising, that little movement of the abdominal wall or the little expansion of the rib cage, contraction of the rib cage, or the simple touching, or the hearing, or other touch points like sits bones on the cushion or the chair or even the hands, wherever they're touching. That simple experience of contact. That's what I mean by kindergarten. Like I can't be with my life, but I can be with my hands touching my thighs because that's a relatively neutral experience. It's not threatening. Can I be? No, it's, the hard part is it's neutral, so there's a habit of ignoring what's neutral. So if you can, you have to overcome that habit. And we overcome it with intention, like the intention to be interested, the attent- intention to be alert, the intention not to forget it, to keep it in mind. So it's a training, right? So then I'm bringing, like, let's use the touch point. My hands are touching. And I might even, like, have a, even a very specific place, like I'm feeling the middle finger 
right at the pad at the front of the, just that one little point. Because right now, I just need something really simple. Breathing in, feeling that touching. Breathing out, simply feeling that index finger touching. And you could even switch. You do your left hand with the in-breath and your right hand with the out-breath. It makes the mind, the attention work a little bit, which is good because when it's working, it's not going to be seduced to going to the worries and the other pain in the body and getting back entangled in all of its stuff, all of the drama, self-centered drama. So then we're training, we're doing like, can I be intimate with this simple thing without attachment? Be aware of that simple experience of contact or pressure or warmth or whatever you're feeling there without needing it to be other than it is. So we're practicing the happiness of not needing the moment to be different. But just a very specific aspect of the present moment, not the whole shebang. Just that one little piece of the present moment. But we can get really good at it. Being intimate with one thing as we breathe in, one thing as we breathe out, and we really get a taste of what it's like to be present without attachment, without grasping, without needing the moment to be different. And that will really build your confidence. Oh my God, there is actually real freedom. The Buddha wasn't just, you know, making this up. It's actually profoundly satisfying to not to be intimate without grasping. And we start wanting to preach, right? Usually when you have a good sit like that and you really have a sense of what the Buddha's pointing to, we immediately want to tell our friends, oh, you've got to start this. And then they definitely don't want to talk to us. <laughs> but it it's actually can be useful not to do it, but to catch yourself doing it because then it will help you realize, oh, this is what every meditator has had to deal with. You get a little bit of positive experience and then you start taking it personally. right? And then you remember, okay, just keep doing it and don't get confused by the energy that starts to build because the more you do this practice, you're going to start having more energy And if you're not aware, if you don't hear this instruction, then neurotically you're going to think you have to do something with all that energy, like tell your friends or whatever, sign up for a thousand retreats or, you know, basically build up an idea of yourself as a meditator and then it's going to all come crashing down. That's okay. It's going to happen to some degree for all of us anyway in little, big times, little times. But we can avoid some of that roller coaster with the practice by realizing, oh, it's starting to work. I'm getting excited. We do this in relationships too. You know, we fall in love. We think it's going to be really fix me. It never does. And to whatever degree we think the relationship is going to save me, it tends to undermine the relationship. Same thing with our Dharma practice, right? So it's good to know, oh yeah, this is the normal trajectory do what I'm told to do. There are actual positive results. Don't get confused by the positive energy that starts to show up in your life. Just know, oh yeah, be mindful of it. Oh yeah, 
lots of energy. It feels like this. Can that be okay? I'm not personalizing it. If I personalize the positive energy, I do neurotic stuff with it. If I'm just willing to be intimate without grasping it, it's quite useful to have a lot of energy in life, right? To do good stuff, take care of the business of life, do more practice, right? Be willing to face more difficult stuff. It's a lot of good uses for energy. So we don't want to be uh, ashamed of it or... But it takes special handling. And, you know, being in my role for all these years, I just see this crash and burn. I see it in myself, of course, but I've seen it in so many other practitioners just getting some momentum in their practice, things starting to work, more energy, starting to tell themselves a story about their practice and about being a meditator, crash, no longer coming to common ground, no longer practicing, right? Because when you crash, then doubt comes like, oh, maybe I just made that all up. Maybe there wasn't anything there. Maybe it's just kind of cultish what those guys do. you know. And we stop doing it. That's why the Buddha was so pragmatic. You know, He really said, you've got to check it out for yourself so that you become independent. It doesn't matter what other people say. You've seen enough times. No, when you do this, you get this result. It's really lawful in that way. Because when it comes right down to it, it's just a natural process. And when we act neurotic, we become neurotic. When we act with wisdom, relate with wisdom, there's more and more freedom. It's really that simple. And wisdom is this just seeing things as they are, being intimate without grasping. So that was really what I wanted to bring up tonight. We're going to continue in this really pragmatic way for a couple more weeks, just reviewing the practice. But the point tonight, before opening it up for discussion, is just the importance that we have to train the mind. Like, if we're at least intrigued with these teachings on renunciation, letting go, then use that energy of being intrigued to specifically check it out, to train your mind. Find a quiet time, sit down in a comfortable way where you can be relatively still, set a timer, insight meditation timer, or any way you want a time, and then practice being intimate. Use your training object, the breath, the whole body, some touch points, and practice being intimate without needing the experience to be different than it is. Sustaining that present moment awareness, sustaining the intimacy, interest. We're really developing that mental muscle, how to keep something in mind. It's like not forgetting the meditation object. Not the idea of it, but the actual touching, right? Staying with it. And realize that we can be intimate, really there in life, without controlling energy, resisting, reactivity, neurotic way of relating. And then we take it on the road because the sit will end and then we have to be in relationship with the world, do our thing. And then we just do the best we can out there, right? Because it's more wild. But the confidence we build in the formal sit will really allow us to practice out in the world. And what we learn out in the world will be those lessons will come and inform our more formal sitting time. But I'll leave it here. We have 15 minutes. Remember, it's the etiquette here to stay until 9 o'clock on Wednesday nights so that uh, people aren't walking out during the Q&A time. 
it's really respectful to stay to the end. So, any comments? A lot of you have been practicing for a while, or even if you're new, what have you been learning in your practice? What questions have come to mind? Who would like to begin? Any experiences of renunciation showing up? Any confidence? Hey, I'm uh, Travis. So I've had an experience relevant to what you're talking about. I, like there's sometimes where like even with practicing, it just clicks. Everything feels right. And I'm like, whoa, it's just mind-blowing. But then like you were talking about, and maybe sometimes I'm lacking the wisdom. I go out into the real world and I'm like, oh, I fell into it. I got really stressed out about this. I mean, does that still happen to you or like just something that can be yeah, an I ongoing this, struggle? Yeah, I mentioned this the other night. I think it's not uncommon for long-time practitioners like myself that uh, when the mind does get entangled and suffering arises, the mental and physical constriction that comes with suffering, it's really synonymous with suffering, right? The heart feels burdened. But now when the heart feels burdened, when my mind's entangled, it's like a beautiful oops, oops, mindfulness spell. <laughs> it's like my mind is deeply suspicious of suffering. Because like, I'm pretty confident now, after the 37 years or so of practice, that suffering is optional. Right? So I do suffer, but, but pretty soon when I'm suffering, I'm cur- there's at least a thread of curiosity like, well, this is interesting. Right? It appears like being tight makes sense, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't. So then, given what's in play in my life in this moment, what's showing up in my mind, what's showing up physically in terms of sight and sound, you know, where's the hook? What's the mind not seeing clearly? What, when seen clearly, when acknowledged honestly, allows the heart to release? Right? So that's the thing. An ordinary, untrained person, they suffer and we run from it. A well-trained person, we suffer and we get interested. Oh, my teacher's shown up. Because I know suffering is optional. So... This is kind of, it's like people who like crossword puzzles or other kind of puzzles. It's like, oh, there's something, there's something interesting here. How is it that suffering is arising? Because we've located the cause right here. Like the mind isn't seeing something clearly enough. There's something here in the present moment that the mind hasn't yet acknowledged or felt. What is it? Some attitude, some point of view some sensation. Yeah. Thanks, Travis. Thank Who'd you. like to go next? Thoughts or questions that come to mind about the practice? You know, there's been kind of two, two things I've been observing with my practice. Um, one is that kind of the more tranquil um, experiences I have, the more alarming the non-tranquil experiences are. It's like, it's like almost worth it because it's like, tr- like having a really equanimous and um, tranquil, you know, meditation practice or even a daily practice can be so um, rewarding or just so reassuring 
that it kind of brings me to my other point, which is that they're both seductive. It's like, you know, I can I see myself kind of um, taking the bait in terms of uh, really kind of getting into wanting to have um, one craving, you know, one experience over the other. So I don't know if there's something that, you know, <laughs> can be done about that or if it's just like, as you've been saying, it's just a matter of just kind of maintaining curiosity and, and um, interest. Yeah. So it's similar to what Mike is talking about. It's similar to what I was saying earlier, which is for people, a lot of what we do, especially in the beginning, we really want to taste the peace of seclusion, the tranquility. Like when we're just with one thing, then the mind lets go of everything else, including our to-do lists and all our failures and all our hopes. And I'm just knowing the breath coming in and breath going out. And one of the things the Buddha said is you should never underestimate how healing and how profound a concentrated mind can be. It's really out of this world, literally, right? And and the thing is, when we start having deeper meditation times with a lot of tranquility, a lot of peace, like I said, the world just does not hold up to that. And we want to, and it starts to bother us, and we just want to live in that space. But eventually, wisdom realizes, I can't live in that space. Because concentration arises when the conditions are suitable, right? And when they're not suitable, I can't get back there. So it's not really a dependable place. And that kind of breaks our heart. But that's okay, because the Buddha said, but there is a way to maintain that level of peace, but it's not because your mind is secluded from ordinary life. It's because there's a lot of wisdom. And that's what you have to do. So that's where you start relying, Mike, when you come back into sort of ordinary consciousness and you got stuff to do in life, you got to get involved in the messy stuff of work and relationship and everything else. Then we bring the wisdom teachings. Now the Buddha says, you know, what did the Buddha say? So we have some pithy little teachings that we remind ourselves, you know, in your own words or maybe in the Buddha's words. It doesn't really matter that like nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Now that's a good pithy phrase to bring to mind when somebody says something to you and it feels really insulting and you take it really personal and then you remember, oh yeah, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Maybe I don't need to personalize this sense of being insulted. Well, what would that be like? So we're really exploring the equanimity, the tranquility we experience because of seclusion, we're wondering, what is that equanimity? What is that calm? What does that peace look like when somebody's being abusive or insulting? Or when something doesn't turn out the way I wanted it to turn out? Or I feel betrayed by a friend? You know, What does freedom look like there? We're interested. And that makes it more of a wisdom practice than the tranquility practice. But we learn, we learn to, we fall in love with the feeling of equanimity and calm from samadhi practice, from concentration practice. 
And then we want it all the time. And that's what drives our interest in wisdom practice. Okay. So let's, if you want to be peaceful with conditions no matter what they are, well, start practicing being peaceful with conditions no matter what they are. So the next time you're, you dress too warm and it's really hot and sticky, even though it's late September and you're wondering what the hell's going on, say, so, okay, this is a great practice. I'll be sticky, right? I'll be overdressed and I'll practice being free with the conditions of being sticky and overdressed instead of practicing being irritated all day. It's a choice, right? People are bothering me. I can practice being free with that or I can practice being irritated by that. Traffic's bad. I can practice being irritated with it or I can practice being unburdened by the traffic. So that's wisdom practice. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Yeah, I think I just need to learn how to take cold showers essentially symbolically <laughs> yeah because i'm really enjoy hot showers like in a big way so it's like that's ex- that's ex- that's exactly what it is though you know so one thing to play with is practice like ask yourself what would the buddha say here or you know you're really calling on your own wisdom because it isn't the buddha who's going to speak your own understanding like what under you could even put it phrase it this way like when you're you're in life you're in the messiness the difficulty of life and you feel burdened by it you feel pushed around by it and then just ask well, what perspective what understanding might be useful here and then play with it i mean play is an important word reflect that's there's a big part of wisdom practice it's all about contemplation reflection where we're regurgitating a little you don't need a lot of teaching. Like, let go, honey. <laughs> it can be simple. But you're reflecting on it. Like, what would that mean? What would that look like here? Let me try. What do I actually let go of? You know? So we're kind of working it. And we're learning from our, our success, but we're also learning from making it worse. And we'll get better at it. Yeah, Femi, please. Thanks, Mike. You get the last word, Femi. Uh, thank you very much for the teaching, Mark. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, this is very apt for me. Uh, right now, I'm in a place professionally. A lot of things are coming together in a very good way. It's beautiful. It's exciting. Yeah. And I find that um, the... When I'm in a place where things are the exact opposite, professionally or in life, uh, it's a much easier thing to fully embody the principle of letting go and being non-attached. You know? Like, I'm so deeply spiritual when life sucks. (laughs) Because I'm like, oh, you know, I just, it's so stressful and I need to like, you know. So being non-attached in that moment, like, much easier. <clears throat> but now the sun is shining on my face and the wind is at my back and the flowers are blooming and it's like, why would I meditate? <laughs> um, and, you know, you know, I've been doing this for a while now and it's like I, I've, I, I, can, I can see how 
you know, like this one movement of mine is like to to not meditate, to to just soak up and really like uh, to cling to like this these temporal these temporal things. And then uh, the next movement of the heart was uh, forming the story about the spiritual meditator who's unattached to those things, and therefore I, I began to averse myself to all the success in my world. Like, I don't need that stuff. I'm deeply spiritual, and I don't. <laughs> and so um, I realized that that wasn't, uh, wasn't working either because it was creating, it was a weird aversion towards the goodness in life. And, and then I realized, like, the third movement was that I, I don't know how to be in this moment. Like, I don't know to, and that was like hard for me because I'm used to like knowing what to do in different yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, not knowing how to handle all this goodness, goodness that's coming up, but having some awareness that hating the goodness does not bring goodness, you know, does not bring more happiness to me. And so now uh, what I've uh, been doing just as a practice kind of is uh, taking a little time to just so moving throughout spaces, work, the world, like not seeing what's going on as me doing a thing, but just seeing seeing the movement of being, seeing me as a being in this process of moving with other beings. And something about that has uh, allowed me to appreciate the goodness that's going on, but to hold it lightly, to know like it's going to transition. <laughs> it's, it won't always be like this. It'll be like it was six months ago at some point in my life again. Yeah, yeah. And so the transition from that as well. Yeah, a lot of wisdom there, Femi. Thanks so much for sharing that. And um, I know a little bit about the roller coaster Femi's been in the middle of. And uh, yeah, the, if, if we're lucky, life beats uh, all arrogance out of us, if we're lucky. <laughs> and if we're lucky... It doesn't, and and we continue to suffer because more than anything, our mind, the conditioned mind or the habit-based mind, it wants to know what the heck's going on. And what we're really hoping, and we, you kind of touched on it in what you were saying, Femi, this sort of kind of like a newborn, I don't know much, but I know that I don't know. I know that I don't know. Things are happening, good stuff's happening. And everything you said, like all those different phases you described, there's some real wisdom there, but it isn't clinging to the wisdom that's there. Like, there is danger in success. The danger when things are really working for us, the danger is thinking that we're out of danger. Right? That's the danger. Right? That somehow the success, the fact that this person loves me, the fact that I'm getting this you know, professional success... Uh, means that I'm out of the woods, I'm out of danger. But we're never out of danger. That The sort of essence of human, human life is vulnerability and exposure and uncertainty. And that doesn't go away. The most successful people have are vulnerable, living with uncertainty, as, as are the people who are you know, experiencing a lot of suffering. So that, that sense of humility is most important because it keeps us awake. And the only way 
we can navigate life without suffering is actually be there. But what the habit-based mind wants is a set plan. Because we, we wrongly think that having to be there moment by moment is a lot of work. And initially it really does feel like a lot of work to have to really, like, we're going to end right now. You're going to walk out of this building, ride your bike, drive your car, whatever. And it just feels like, oh, I don't really need to pay attention. I can do that on autopilot. But to say, to sort of get a teaching, no, 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 it really matters. Like if I could somehow convince you that there's somebody with a gun and as soon as you lose present moment awareness, they're going to shoot you, right? It's like we would like, we wouldn't forget the present moment, right? Well, we would probably. (laughs) (laughs) But we wouldn't want to lose the present moment. (laughs) But the thing is, we think it doesn't matter losing the thread of the present moment. So there's sort of, the way that life has sort of beaten you up and thrown you around, you know, the the real fruit of all of that tumble is like, I'm done with being arrogant. I'm I'm done thinking I can figure this thing out. I can win. I'm done thinking I can win. And that way, even if you kind of like, because like you said at the beginning, failure is actually easier to deal with. And when you get really good at failure, then generally life starts throwing success your way. And then you really screw up. <laughs> and we see this like in Bo- with Buddhist leaders, right? We see it in every field that when people have a lot of success, they generally do really stupid things. Yeah. And, and have a hard fall. So don't wish for success. <laughs> and when it comes... Approach with a lot of humility so that you're really alert. You're really alert. Like what he said before he got to that newborn phase, Femi really thought like, oh yeah, there's danger in success. There is a little danger in success. It's really appropriate to have the hair on the back of the neck raised. Like, okay, seems like people like me. Seems like I'm, you know, wind's at my back, like Femi said. Stay alert. (laughs) Stay alert. And, being alert doesn't mean tight because we can really appreciate it too, right? There's a lot of energy moving. feels really alive, right? And it's like the path gets more narrow because it's so much easier to take it personally when it's feeling good. Then it really hurts. It really hurts. Thanks, Femi, for sharing and everyone else. And pass the mic over to Kevin. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words, just enough time for one or two breaths. Appreciate the silence. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.